0: Greetings friends and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker and I'm your host as we work our way through the sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Now this week we've reached sermon 583 in our list of featured sermons which form the subject for our podcasts. Each week we read a daily selection, this week from 577 to 583 4. Now, uh, that's the sermon we're looking at today. I confess I'm not sure why it's got a double number because this one is 583-4 and the next one is actually 584. Uh, Usually when there's a double number, it means that the number after is dropped. Uh, So I haven't been able to find out why that's precisely the case. If you want to follow along as we read day by day, you can do so on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. And you can find us too at mediagratii.org slash podcasts, where you can get your weekly newsletter with a PDF of the featured sermon and the list of reading if you want to follow along. So our sermon today is The Lamb, The Light. The Lamb, The Light. And Spurgeon's text is Revelation 21:23, And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. There's his point in this sermon preached at the end of July the 31st of 1864 at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Now he begins in his introduction by highlighting the fact that Christ is always central in the scriptures and foremost in glory. His opening sentence is this, To the lover of Jesus, it is very pleasant to observe how the Lord Jesus Christ has always stood foremost in glory from before the foundation of the world and will do so as long as eternity shall last. All through the scriptures, Christ is at the core of revelation. He is the revealer and in making himself known, he is making God known. Spurgeon says that the religion of the Jew would have been very emptiness if it had not been for Christ, who is the substance of the former shadows. So the whole Bible speaks of Christ, and it is always Christ by whom a sinner is saved. It is always Christ, says the preacher, from the opening leaf of Genesis to the closing note of Malachi, Christ, 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 and nothing but Christ. And that's what leads into Spurgeon's theme when he thinks about the, uh, the glory of heaven, that the Lamb is the light. And he's going to preach this in a way that reveals his uh, particular uh, millennial theology, his notion of what's going to happen at the end of the world. He wants to extol the Lord Jesus Christ, first of all, in the excellence of his glory in the millennial state, then in heaven, and then in the condition of every heavenly-minded man who is on his way to paradise. And his contention is that in all of these cases, the Lamb is the light thereof. Now, uh, you or I may not share Spurgeon's particular millennial perspective. Uh, As it happens, I don't. But we can respect the man for his honesty and integrity, as we saw in our previous podcast. Spurgeon actually says what he believes. He doesn't try to water it down. He doesn't pretend that uh, he's not clear about something that he thinks is clear. Now, we may not agree with everything he says, but I think that the substance is of value even if the nuance is not. And we're trying to be fair to Spurgeon in understanding what he believed and how he made Christ known. Now, as we work through this, there'll be times when uh, somebody with a different millennial perspective, a a slightly different uh, eschatological uh, perspective, is going to say, well, maybe some of this is more to do with the, the ultimate or final state, some of it then more to do with the Intermediate state. If you're not sure what that means, the uh, the the Scriptures teach that there is an intermediate state for God's people, and indeed for unbelievers between death and the resurrection, where the body and soul are divided one from another, and in that state, the bodies of both the wicked and the righteous are in their graves, and the the righteous are waiting for the resurrection, uh, the wicked too, are. Uh, Waiting, not anticipating, we couldn't say, but uh, the the, the day of resurrection for them also will come. And during that period, the souls of the righteous are already enjoying something of the, uh, the glories of heaven, although in a disembodied state, and the wicked are suffering some of the torments of hell, again, without a body to complete that particular and grievous punishment. And then in the day of resurrection, there's a resurrection both of the just and of the unjust. And then there's a new heavens and a new earth for the righteous. And the wicked body and soul will suffer in the hell that God has prepared for them. And so even though we may not have precisely the same perspective of Spurgeon, and some of us who are listening, some of you who are listening may have, uh, nevertheless, there are still great benefits for us to consider that in any of these states and conditions, it is Christ who is truly and finally and ultimately the glory. So when it comes to then the millennial period, uh, Spurgeon says we're not given to prophesyings, but this much we have learned most clearly that on this earth where sin and Satan gained victory over God through the fall of man Christ is to achieve a complete triumph over all his foes not on another battlefield but on this and I think every Christian uh, at some point in their eschatology is going to have Christ who is ruling over a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells Spurgeon says we should rejoice that scripture is so clear and so explicit upon this great doctrine of the future triumph of Christ over the whole world, to which I think we can all add our Amen. Spurgeon goes on to say he's not going to give any particulars, and then he gives a number of particulars. We believe that the Jews will be converted and that they will be restored to their own land. We believe that Jerusalem will be the central metropolis of Christ's kingdom. We also believe that all the nations shall walk in the light of that glorious city which shall be built at Jerusalem. So in Spurgeon's perspective, in the millennial period, an earthly Jerusalem is going to be the centre of a kingdom of Christ in this world. But, says Spurgeon, whatever may be the splendours of that day in which Christ is in the midst of his people, and truly, he says, there's a temptation there to let our imagination revel, however bright may be the walls set with Chalcedony and Amethyst, however splendid the gates which are of one pearl, whatever may be the magnificence set forth by the streets of gold. And he seems to be suggesting here that uh, there is still some symbolism in those things in his understanding. This we know, he says, that the psalm and substance, the light and glory of the whole will be the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And that's what he wants Christians to meditate upon, and that is something that all of us can turn our minds to. Jesus makes the light of the millennium, says Spurgeon, because his presence will be that which distinguishes that age from the present. It is Christ's being with his people that makes heaven to be heaven by any proper measure. The paradise which is to be regained for us will have this for its essential and distinguishing mark that the Lord shall dwell among us. And so he says, the presence of Christ will be the means of the peace of the age. Now he's thinking again of the, uh, the millennial peace uh, in his understanding, but Christ is indeed our peace and he picks up on that beautiful prophetic imagery of the lion eating straw like an ox and the leopard lying down with the kid and he says that's not because men have improved themselves or they've become enlightened or civilization has reached a certain pitch but rather because Christ is among his people and his presence shall change the hearts of men then Christ's presence is its special instruction in the period They'll need no candle, neither light of the sun nor of the moon. Christ's presence will instruct all people, and they shall know who he is. And then Christ will be the glory of that age. Contemplate this thought, says Spurgeon, and though I speak of it so feebly, yet it may ravish your hearts with transport that Christ is the son of that long expected, that blessed day that Christ shall be the highest mountain of all the hills of joy, the widest river of all the streams of delight, that whatever they may be of magnificence and of triumph, Christ shall be the centre and soul of it all. Oh, to be present and to see him in his own light, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And what I love about this is that even though I differ from Spurgeon in some of his understanding here, nevertheless, the centrality of Christ, the the delight that he has, the eager anticipation of the glory of Jesus Christ among his people is something that should thrill the soul of every believer. And actually, if we don't have such an eager anticipation, if we don't have such a desire, if we don't have a longing to be with Christ in in this way, as well as in the sense of our souls departing to be with him when we die, then there is something that is flawed about our understanding and our expectation and our hope. We really need this kind of eagerness, this kind of anticipation, this kind of desire that we might be with Christ in the fullest and truest sense, and that he would be with us. And now he turns to the state of the glorified in heaven, Itself, And as we've said, we've, we've talked a little bit about the way that we can uh, divide up some of these things. But he wants to make the point that in that world, we are independent of creature comforts. There's nothing that we need that uh, we rely upon here, that we rest upon here in the same way. So we don't need to pray, give us our daily bread. We don't need to worry about the aging process. Our clothes will never wear out, and they shall never be defiled in 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 on earth we We're content with food and clothing, but in heaven they they don't toil and they do not spin. Spurgeon's point is that Uh, because of the, the glories of the world to come and because the glory of the resurrection body is such that there are certain needs that we now have that he anticipates will be entirely suspended in the world to come. In the same way, there'll be no need of social ties, We need here the associations of friendship and of family love but in heaven they are neither married nor are given in marriage. Now he may be slightly overstating the case here and underplaying the fellowship of the saints but his point is that we don't depend upon these relationships in the same way in glory. Uh, His point is that the saints in heaven are are entirely dependent for their joy upon Jesus Christ. He is their sole spiritual light. And so, he is light to them in the sense of joy. Their joy is compounded of this. Jesus chose us, Jesus loved us, Jesus brought us, Jesus washed us, Jesus robed us, Jesus kept us, Jesus glorified us. Here we are, entirely through the Lord Jesus, through him alone. The Lamb is the light of glory in this sense, that to walk in his light is to have this joy of knowing that Christ is ours and that we are his. We think of the the character and the person of Jesus, and these are wells of delight to the believer. Spurgeon says, when I've listened to Handel's music in The Messiah, where that great musician wakes every instrument to praise the name of Jesus, I have felt ready to die with excessive delight that such music should ever have been composed by mortal man to the honour of our great Messiah. But what will be the music of celestial choirs? There our faculties shall be strengthened, our capacities enlarged, our whole being expanded. And thus we shall be able to bear the full swell of seraphic music and join in it without fainting from delight while they sing the glory of the Son of Man, the Son of God. Christ is the light of heaven because he is the substance of its joy. Such a glorious image, such a a wonderful prospect, such a a beautiful expectation and Spurgeon paints it uh, so splendidly. But light isn't, Christ's light isn't just our joy. Light is also the cause of beauty. And, says Spurgeon, that will be true in the glory which is to come. Christ is the light, and there is nothing good, nothing comely, attractive, nothing gracious about any one of us, except as we get it from Christ. And the same will be true in the glory which is to come. And then he says another meaning of light in Scripture is knowledge. Ignorance is darkness, but in heaven we'll have our light from Christ because He is the fountain of all that we know and there's this this sense then, as he thinks about what light means. now he needs to be careful here that he he doesn't fall into some kind of a a word association game, and yet at the same time he's trying to communicate this sense, this multiplied sense of what light is and does light brings joy, light reveals beauty light brings knowledge and and these then are the things that Christ will be to us and it's a it's a poetic soul i think reaching uh, beyond its capacity to try and communicate something of the beauty and the majesty of the king of kings speaking then of the the knowledge that we have in christ he, he says that dr owen that's john owen the uh, the excellent puritan doctor he was a master of theology but the smallest child who goes to heaven from a Sunday school knows more of Christ after being in heaven five minutes than Dr. Owen did. John Calvin searched very deep, and Augustine seemed to come to the very door of the great secret. But Augustine and Calvin would be but children on the first form there, that is, on the, uh, the lowest bench in the school. I mean, if they knew no more than on earth. It's a stunning thought, is it not? that a few moments in heaven will reveal more to us of the glory of God in Jesus Christ than years of careful study here upon earth. That's something to make us eagerly long for the glory which is to come. Spurgeon says you've had many experiences and tossings to and fro. You've felt your ignorance, your corruption and your weakness. But there you shall see to the very bottom of human nature... You shall understand the virulence of man's depravity and the heights of God's sovereignty, the marvels of his electing love and the magnificence of his divine power by which he has made us to be partakers of the divine nature. There you shall see and hear and know all you desired or wished below and every power finds sweet employ in that eternal world of joy. And then, moving on, he says just one last thing, that the light also means manifestation. In this world, it does not yet appear how great we must be made. God's people are a hidden people. Their life is hid with Christ in God, and there it will be made clear what we truly are. Life, Light is sown for the righteous, Christ the sacred rain that brings the harvest above ground. The righteous are always pearls, but hidden, as it were, in the oyster, And now Christ brings them forth. They were always diamonds. They were far away in the Golconda of sin, but Christ has fetched them up from the deep mines. Uh, Golconda, there's a a, a very typical uh, reference to the source of wealth, a place where these diamonds could be found. They were always stars, but they were hidden behind the clouds. It is Christ who makes clear what believers are. And so says Spurgeon, Come, my soul, take wing a moment. It is not far for you to fly. Mount up and walk the golden streets. And as you walk, you shall see nothing, nothing but Jesus glorified. Come up to the throne and you shall see Christ on it. Sit down and listen to the song. Christ is the theme. Go to the banquet. Christ is the meat. Mingle with the dancers. Christ is their joy. Make you yourself one in their great assemblies, and Christ is the God they worship. Worthy the Lamb that died, they cry to be exalted. Thus, worthy the Lamb, our lips reply, for He was slain for us. Again, the 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 beauty, the the excellence of of what lies ahead for the believer is enough to overwhelm our souls, and this is where Spurgeon. Uh, is not just now stirring our hope for what lies ahead, but he's also strengthening our hope for what lies around us, our more immediate future, if you like, because the heavenly man's state may be set forth in these words. And what he means by this is that we who have heaven in our hearts now, we who know God in Christ on this earth, the same is true for us. For even on earth, first of all, the heavenly man's joy does not depend upon the creature. So he's maybe a little bit going back on himself now and, uh, and saying we, we do depend. But he said, not ultimately, still on earth, there are things which we have which are precious to us, but they are not the most precious thing. They are not all to us. Yes, we uh, we, we we have light. For our eyes, but he talks now to some of the blind, and there are some in his congregation, those who who've been long he says since they saw the sun, but he says, "Christ is still your light, you have no natural light, but the spiritual light of Christ is joy to you. What about friends? Yes, our friends are very precious to us, and we, we love them, and we want God to spare them. But if they were taken from us, then as has been the case for many believers, Christ will still be our upholder. He will still be our joy. We will not deny him because we have lost others. What about poverty? You lack bread, perhaps. You you appreciate it. You're, you're glad to have food and money, but you could lose that and you would not lose Christ. And so he says, we've learned to sing. I would not change my blessed estate for all the world calls good or great. And while my faith can keep her hold, I envy not the sinner's gold. And what about health? Who can prize that enough, he asks. When stretched upon the bed of sickness, then we begin to know how priceless a boon was a sound body. But oh, the Christian, though he loves health, he can do without it. I've heard of Christians who've been blind, who've been bedridden and have not stirred from their bed for many years, who could scarcely lift their hands through paralysis and who never had stood upon their feet for years through some stroke of God's hand, yet have they delighted themselves in the Lord. His point as he moves through these varieties of experience is that the Christian leans upon the arm of God. He uses this lovely little image He has pressed through the crowd of creatures. He has bidden them all retire that he might live nearer to his all-sufficient Lord. And if when he has reached his Lord the creatures turn their backs and go away, he says, There, you may all go. I have him now. I embrace him now. He has kissed me with the kisses of his lips. You may spit on me and you will. Now he has spoken softly to me, you may curse me if you please. Now that he has told me I am his and he is mine, even my father and mother may forsake me, for the Lord has taken me up. Yes, says the preacher, the heavenly man, even before he gets to heaven, has no need of the sun nor of the moon, for the glory of God doth lighten him. This then is the emphasis of Spurgeon's... uh, sermon with regard to to life on earth he is not dismissing the blessings that we receive and which we appreciate for which we give thanks and which we genuinely enjoy but his point is this that while we have christ we might lose those things and still holding on to christ we might still have light and joy and peace and so he finishes by observing that such a man, however, has great need of Christ, and he cannot get on without Christ. O oh, Christian man, what would you do without a Saviour? We should be of all men the most miserable, were you have once known him. Ah, you who do not know Christ, you can get on pretty well without him, like a poor slave who's never known liberty and rests content in bondage. Here he is now, rising to the climax of his sermon— He wants us to understand that we can do without light, without friendship, without life, but we cannot live without our Saviour. What should we do without Christ in our trials, our sicknesses? What should we do when we come to die with no one to make our dying bed feel soft as downy pillows are? The heavenly-minded man wants Christ always. He loves him and he loves him enough to desire more of him. We... We trust him, we cling to him, and he holds fast to us. And so he concludes, In what misery and ignorance do you grope who do not know the Saviour? Would you know Christ? Would you have the happiness of resting upon his bosom? Trust him then, for whosoever trusts him is saved. To trust Christ is that saving faith which brings the soul out of condemnation. He that believes on him is not condemned. Trust, as guilty as you are, trust yourself to His atonement, and it shall wash you. Trust to His power, it shall prevail for you. Trust to His wisdom, it shall protect you. Trust to His heart, it shall love you, world without end. Now, you and I might read through such a sermon, and we might take some issue with aspects of its theology, and and I would. We might say it's not the most polished sermon, and I would agree. We might say that it's got a few clumsy phrases, and I would say that that is so. It doesn't have the same clarity of structure as many of Spurgeon's sermons. I think it's worth bearing in mind that he was mired in controversy at this time. There was a lot going on, and uh, perhaps that's reflected. But what is clear is that Christ is all in all to this man. Now, we're not excusing or dismissing any more than Spurgeon would some of those things with which we're, we're saying maybe this isn't the neatest and the best. But there's still a brightness to it. Why? Because the man is taken up with Jesus Christ. And I hope that you would say that I could forgive a man a great deal who still shows me Christ. As we think about the glory which is to come, as we think about what lies ahead when we go to be with Christ, which is far better, our souls made perfect in his presence. When we anticipate the resurrection of our bodies, that with uh, the restored humanity, a perfect soul and a glorified body, we shall be with him and he will be our light and our joy and our peace. And when we think about what it means to have him and to desire him now those are things that ought to continually lift up our hearts. And so I think Spurgeon would say to us, whatever else may be missing from your sermon, make sure there is plenty of Christ in it. Let him be very precious to you and hold him out that he may become precious to all who hear you. I hope that that will be an encouragement to us. It's not about our perfections. It's not about all our excellences. It is about the perfections and the excellences of the Lamb, the Light, Jesus Christ, the hope and joy of every believing heart now and forever. Do join us then next week as we continue to consider what it means to have such a Christ as ours as we turn to sermon 585, A Mystery, Saints Sorrowing, and Jesus glad sermon 585 and the uh, the readings for that week will be 584 through to 590 590 I hope you'll join us and I hope that you'll keep your eyes fixed upon the Lord Christ and all his beauty and glory until then thank you for listening and I hope you'll join us again in the future God bless you have been listening to from the heart of Spurgeon with me jeremy walker if you like the podcast please subscribe or write a review on your favorite podcast app